Welcome to the De-School Yourself podcast, healing the 15,000-hour infliction of public school. Hosted by Zach Slayback and Jeff Till. This installment is called A Renegade View of School with Thaddeus Russell. In this episode, Zach and I welcome Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus is a author of the book, The Renegade History of the United States. He is a university professor, he is a free thinker, and he is also a father. Uh, We thought we would get his perspective uh, because he sees things both at the intersection of history. He's also an educator. He's also starting his new alternative uh, education source called Renegade University. And then we'd also thought we'd hear from him as both a person who went through school and a person who has a child attending school. Besides teaching at university, I'm just reading this from his uh, book bio. Uh, He has his PhD from Columbia University. His first book, Out of the Jungle, Jimmy Hoffa and the Remaking of the American Working Class, was published in 2001. He is a frequent contributor to the Daily Beast and has published articles in New York Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, the Christian Science Monitor, Salon, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as well as scholarly scholarly essays in American Quarterly and the Columbia History of Post-World War II America. He has appeared on the History Channel and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and I know he's also been on the Joe Rogan Experience and has been a frequent guest on the School Sucks Project, uh, as well as you can find him on YouTube giving some speeches. If uh, you do get a chance, pick up this wonderful book, The Renegade History of the United States. Uh, it's all about renegades or people who you wouldn't think would be contributing to history and culture. We always think of the great man theory and having presidents and war heroes lead us through history. But Thaddeus likes to open up and look at slavery, drunkards, laggards, prostitutes, pirates, uh, hippies, protesters, all sorts of other types of people who you wouldn't think associated with history. It's fascinating stuff. And so we will now bring on Thaddeus and hear his perspectives on de-schooling. You know, the history of the schooling system that we know today, at least the public schooling system, what I'd say probably even some, a lot of the private school system, uh, is all, is traced back to what political scientists call state formation uh, in the 19th century and early 20th, but, you know, it starts in the 19th century with the establishment of um, the United States of America as a national state and then the individual states separately so but you can see this in other countries as well when when a nation state is established one of the first projects is to institute schooling that's centralized that is controlled at least to some extent if not totally by the central government um Mm -hmm. and the logic of this should be pretty plain to anyone i mean the state must have willing citizens compliant citizens now that doesn't mean it needs to create a society of automatons, although the state would like that. Um, but there has to be some sort of uniform standards, ways of thinking, culture, um, norms, attitudes, behaviors. You know, it has to be instilled uh, at a basic level across the society, or there is no there is no nation. 
meaning there's no central idea about what this thing, this place is. And the state will have difficulty governing, controlling the populace if there isn't at least sort of a, a general agreement on the rules of this new society. So mm -hmm. uh, with the United States, you know, it was established, of course, at the end of the 18th century, but it really, you start to see sort of the, the um, establishment of the state machinery apparatuses, government in the early 19th. And so historians call that the early national period, um, running until about the 1820s or 30s. And right then is when you see the first public schools and you see this uh, sort of a very deliberate attempt to institute um, uniform curriculum and, you know, which are, if you look at the 19th century textbooks and everyone, by the way, I'm going to say I, it's one of the most, it's one of the most fascinating, richest set of primary sources I've ever seen as an American historian mm -hmm. and one of the least studied. Um, McGuffey's was the main textbook used in, I think, elementary and even middle schools in the 19th century. Um, most, most white American children, because many blacks didn't go to public schools, um, but most whites, most white American people in the 19th century read McGuffey's Reader. They were called McGuffey's Readers. And everyone should read those. They're, they're phenomenal. I quote them, actually, in my book, Renegade History of the United States. Um, what is more important in understanding a culture than, in, uh, than, to, than to read what children are taught, right? So mm -hmm. if you look at the McGuffey's readers, it is, to our eyes in the 21st century, sort of comically puritanical. Um, it, there's these injunctions to um, put away one's toys and to learn how to work. You know, these are these are lessons given to five-year-olds and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds. Um, I mean, and it's really, it's, it's they use sort of harsh, extremely harsh language, at least from our point of view. So, you know, talking about things like, you know, leisure being Satan's, uh, Satan's tool and, you know, play and fun being, you know, the work of the devil, et cetera. Um, so very much this uh, Puritan work ethic idea, right? Yeah, so that's being just pounded. I mean, so now we get it more subtly. I mean, it's still taught to children in the textbooks and, you know, throughout our culture. But in the 19th century, they weren't subtle about it. And they weren't sort of the way they weren't apologetic. They weren't sort of, you know, it just it was assumed that this was godly. The work was godly. The work in itself was virtuous, no matter what you got for the work. Um, now it's sort of taught to us I think they're a little more sophisticated but then it just was hammered into the children's heads and so yes this idea that work in itself is godly and virtuous so you should work hard all day long no matter what you gain from it um, and then sort of like gender roles and um, sexual repression I would say they were just implicit in the books in that um, Sex, of course, was never mentioned. And so this is, you know, a lot of historians now look back at the Victorian era, which is what we're talking about, as uh, sort of the most sexually repressed period in American history. And the evidence is actually the silence that this became the norm about sex became silence. So you didn't people stopped talking about sex in the 19th century unless you were a, a, 
a professional, a medical professional. Um, but that in it, the silence in itself acts as repression, right? So the message mm-hmm. is given to children that you don't talk about your body in any particular way, right? Um, and then, of course, the gender gender roles, gender norms were instilled in the way that you know boys and girls were presented in the books. Um, girls were demure, boys were aggressive. Girls were mothers in training. Essentially, they were the caretakers, the nurturers. Boys were the ones who went out into the world and explored and conquered. Um, so it's very obvious. But, I mean, that's that's the point I think that the three of us are most interested in, maybe, is that this it became compulsory in the 19th century, too. I mean, and it's funny, you know, I think about this. Like, I'm not sure that I was like, I, I, don't, I don't think that I was fully aware, cognizant of the fact that school was compulsory until, God, I mean, well into adulthood. I mean, sure, I guess if you had asked me when I was 15 or 16 or 20, you know, is it, is this compulsory? I guess I would have said, I think so. But it never, it's sort of amazing, right? Like people don't actually think about this. They're not conscious of the fact that you could go to prison if you don't send your child to a school, right? Um, according to the state standards. Yeah, no, that's I just let me just jump in. Um, I, let me like double down on that point. Um, I didn't realize it either. Even even after I started a um, a really serious like two year study of education when I was when I was considering about uh, what should I should do with my children, and I, I I even couldn't be convinced after I knew all of the facts and even had that word compulsory in my mouth that I, I was still made to do that or I was still made to go. And yeah. uh, my neighbors all think I'm, I'm wholesale insane um, if I even use that word. And it's just completely invisible because we were just ra- raised as, as sort of our state of nature. Well, you uh, know, it's funny. I mean, this remind, it immediately reminds I just had the same debate with someone recently. I, I used the word compulsory and they said, no, it's not. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, what happened? It's, it's, it's illegal, right? And he said, well, yeah. I said, well, what does that mean? Um, it reminds me of, what was it, like a year ago? What was it? There was something happened in Washington, D.C., some big controversy, some law, something. I forget what happened. And a lot of sort of major liberal pundits, like major people on MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, were saying, oh, all these conservatives and libertarians are saying, you know, that, that people are going to go to jail if they don't follow this law. And, and, and people were like, well, what do you think the law is? <laughs> yeah. it, has to be, it has to be backed right. by the threat of force, by real force, right? Or else it's not a law. <laughs> it was an amazing moment where it, it dawned on me. And in fact, I had the same conversation with my mother not long ago, and she's sort of an old lefty from Berkeley. You know, has been political her entire life, like at a very, very sophisticated level, like super sophisticated Berkeley lefty sort of academic intellectual, you know, thought about, argued about politics for since the 1950s, right? And I said this to her, and she was like, no, no, I mean, you don't go to jail <laughs> if you don't, if you <laughs> If you break the law, I mean, the state will do some other things. Yeah, the state will issue warnings, yeah, for a while. And then if you know, at the end of the day, though, if you, if you keep, you know, ignoring those warnings, the guys with the guns come to your house and take you away. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm probably in school, they yeah, might, it might even be the opposite. The uh, CPS might come to your school and take your children. Yeah. And maybe right. not send you to jail, right. but. The gun, so, it's, it's I mean, look, I mean, I just want to say this, like, it's like, um, 
you know, we have to figure out a way to be able to say this without just being dismissed as insane homeschool libertarian whatever survivalist whatever they think um but this has to be said and it's just it's just a plain fact that like they're actually the children in school are actually being held there at the point of a gun not literally but that's why they're there i mean if they're not there somebody's going they won't go to prison but their parents will i mean the the gun is actually over that school, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that's let's start there. When we start talking about education and public education in particular, I mean, people literally don't understand that that fundamental fact. But that started in the 19th century. That was this idea that came from Prussia. And people don't most very few people know this, right? The Prussian school system. The Prussians invented this idea. They they sort of they were the, you know, um they were the best nationalists. They kind of perfected nationalism in the 19th century. And this was one of their major ideas. They understood this. They said, well, if we're going to have a nation state that's that's functioning, that's powerful, and, by the way, that has, um, you know, we, we are now noticing the Prussians said in the 19th century, we have this thing called capitalism and industrial capitalism. We have these factories and we have people who are working in these giant boxes all day long on these, you know, doing jobs that are terrible that are better better than their lives as peasants but they're still really hard jobs and we're asking demanding that they work 12 or 14 or 16 hours a day and six maybe some sometimes seven days a week um and we need them to work hard the nation state needs them to work hard because power wealth equals power we can't have a strong military without great economic wealth so the state has an interest in the health of the industries um and also of course being in central europe surrounded by all these other hostile countries we need a powerful military now you the only way really to um ensure that you have uh, a a great number of of not just compliant soldiers but soldiers who are eager to serve their country um truly nationalist soldiers is to train them from an early age the prussians and then the germans have understood this for a long long time um but the americans the american educators who invented american public schools the school system horace mann and others in the 19th century they literally learned from prussians and instituted it here so that's that is and this is not sort of again some sort of like crazy conspiracy theory this is any any basic history of the public education system in the United States will say this. It's just the liberal histories will sort of not soft pedal it, but they'll sort of say, oh, well, that was like an excessive application. You know, Horace, the way Horace Mann talked about, you know, training soldiers and uh, soldiers and industrial workers. I mean, yes, he did mean that, but that's not the only function it serves. You know, it's it, it could be made into something better is what they say. But that's where it started and that's actually still its primary function so if you look at like race to the top obama's and arnie duncan's program about you know instituting more testing and basically forcing schools to train the children in a more accelerated way in specifically science and math 
they say, and you can just go back and see, anybody can look this up, Arne Duncan, this, the Secretary of Education who invented the thing, and Obama said, we need to compete with India and China. That's why we're doing this. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's a, it becomes a human capital strategy. So it's, it's not for the flourishing of the children or to uh, encourage people to be, you know, uh, yeah. to be individuals or, or to be happier. It's about how to, how to drive the economy, how to drive our, our sort of post-industrial uh, knowledge economy. Uh, it's people as, as sort of uh, resources or, or assets to be, to be capitalized upon or to exploited. Serve, to, serve, to serve the nation state. I mean, that's, yeah. that's it. So, I mean, when you're, and it, this is like the second thing we should say. I mean, it's when your child is taking that test, um, they're taking it because the president thinks we need to compete with India better in STEM. Uh, I mean, that's, that's why they're doing it. So let's be clear about what's going on here. Um, yeah, it's, so it, of course, creativity, individuality, um, critical thinking, critical thinking. Um, there's a particular kind of critical thinking, I guess, that they teach, mm -hmm. but it's sort of a utilitarian critical thinking you know there's problem solving but problems within a very limited sphere yeah right? maybe information well, processing in some ways right and this is yep. one of the things this is one of the things that we talked about earlier is that i think that when it comes to de-schooling this in particular is a really dangerous and pernicious mindset that there is this given set of answers to problems if you just have the right information available to you and for certain questions about like objective reality, that's true. But at the end of the day, a lot of stuff doesn't come down to a rubric on a test. And mm -hmm. there's a lot more that goes into that kind of thinking that can actually, you know, create value both for yourself and for others in society than, oh, this, this, you filled in the, the right answer to this question. I mean, you see people all the time. I, I'm not particularly well versed on the common core question, to be honest. Education policy, qua policy, bores me. Um, but you see people all the time sharing these ridiculous, ridiculous uh, answers from, from Common Core questions, right? Where somebody gives an answer that's correct and actually rather intuitive, but it's marked wrong because it isn't the explanation that the state was looking for with that specific question. Right. So I, didn't, I don't even care what the content of the Common Core is. I oppose it no matter what, what's in it because it's, it's a national set of standards. Um, mm -hmm. And so yeah. the, that very idea is um, repellent. I mean, I can't even... So the history, let's talk history, and let's talk Common Core quickly. Um, the, again, ask a liberal about Common Core, most of them, well, I don't know, I guess they're sort of split on it, but a lot of them like it. Um, the history of Common Core, do you guys know this? Do you know where it's, that idea came from? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, it was invented by Irving Kristol, the the grand the godfather of neoconservatism. It's a neoconservative idea. In the 1960s and well, 70s, it, it's the neoconservative extension uh, of the no child left behind policies that were yeah, implemented under Bush. Yeah, so yeah, so NCL yeah, that whole exactly. So this but all of that NCLB um, and Common Core all comes from the crystals and the podoritzes of the 60s and 70s, the neocon intellectuals who gave us the Iraq War, et cetera. I mean, that was their that was their main domestic policy that they were into. Yeah. Now, was it, was it just implementing standards or was it the teaching methodology uh, it itself? Was I mean, they pitched it at an abstract intellectual level, but it is the idea. 
that found its way into the Bush White House, and then and then Obama took it over and made and it ramped it up. But you know, there were essays written by these guys, as I said, in the 60s and 70s, about how America needs to have a common curriculum to create. And he said this, Crystal said this, a common culture. Um, the problem, what they really hated more than anything, this is in the 60, late 60s and 70s. This is after the 1965 Immigration Act, which um, repeals the old racist National Origins Act which basically stopped immigration from all the non-Northern European countries. 65, they repealed it, so basically immigration is now flowing again from Southern Europe and Africa and Asia and Latin America for the first time in decades, and the neocons hated that. They hated multiculturalism. They hated sort of the emergence of this black militant uh, culture that they saw both politically just sort of and in, and the, and in the arts. Uh, and it's funny, even though they were Jewish, <laughs> they were assimilationist Jews, and mm -hmm. they wanted the whole country to assimilate, and they just despised this multiculturalism. So it was really an attack on that sort of flowering of a diversity of cultures in the 1960s. But they were, like I said, un unashamed about this, and they put it out there, and it kind of lay dormant for a few decades until they managed to steal the White House. Uh, with Bush, and so they, so they Iraq, they they attacked Iraq and destroyed the Middle East and brought about um, more terrorism, et cetera. All these things we know about, but also domestically, they won big time in instituting No Child Left Behind. And the big idea there wasn't just testing; it was testing for a particular reason, and it was it was to make the nation state stronger, the, the United States stronger, and it was to in, in, to establish a common culture for everyone. So the very idea that any bureaucrat, any person in Washington, D.C., or even in Sacramento um, should be, should be uh, deciding what everybody should think about history or politics or even math or, you know, even science is it's, it's incredible to me that anyone would think that's a good thing. That the kids in Miami should be teaching, should be uh, learning the same things as the kids in Anchorage. It's just, it's phenomenal. Yeah, or even the kid in Miami oh, sitting oh. next to the other kid in Miami uh, yeah, right. should be let learning me, to the let, same let thing. Me, so yeah. Let me play devil's advocate here for a moment. Yeah, I had a conversation the other day with a rather well-read, kind of Burkean conservative type. He he understood a lot of the libertarian arguments uh, against compulsory schooling, which, going back to the question of language, it, it's amazing early 20th century how these these thinkers just co-op all this language, right? If you say compulsory state schooling, that sounds very different than public education, which sounds friendly mm -hmm. and nice, and everyone loves that. Mm -hmm. um, but the argument he made was, okay, but there if, if what we're trying to do is provide the best outcome to children uh if, if we care about what the children inherit right for lack of a better word i really don't like that phrase now that i say it um but if we if we care about what the society that the children come into there are certain values maybe not objective knowledge right right but there are certain values that we want to pass on to them the values that got us thus far right kind of this again burkean conservative these traditions are good and instill virtue in people um, so we owe it to them to put them through some kind of institution, whether you call it compulsory schooling or not, that teaches them these values. Uh, and without doing that, then there's no guarantee that they're actually going to be exposed to these values and 
live into grow up into the society that that their parents you know believe they deserve well okay so yeah so i would say let's test that so i do think i do think the public school system has done a decent job at uh at teaching certain values right um i think it's been decently good at as i said fulfilling horace mann's mission which is to uh create whole classes of basically industrial workers and soldiers um so what happens on the first day of kindergarten you know the kids run into the room going in every which direction and they crawl under the desks and make them into forts instead of sitting at the desks and what what, is the, what happens in the first day of kindergarten they make the children line up and they tell them that thing right there that's not a fort it's not something you play with it's not a toy it's a desk for work sit quietly and listen to me i am the authority figure be deferential to me that's that's that is a lesson that essentially that's what happens in kindergarten that's what they and they're pretty successful at that you know when i teach my students in college now they're doing with me in that classroom essentially the same thing that they were taught in kindergarten so seems to me someone did a decent job teaching them those values mm -hmm. <laughs> to be deferential to authority and to be orderly and to be quiet <laughs> um, uh, yeah, sure. I think they've done pretty well at that. Um, what else have they taught? What other values? Um, I can't think of any. Now, here's one value I, I'm pretty sure they haven't taught. Um, entrepreneurialism. So we celebrate that as a culture, sort of. At least we give lip service to that. I don't... Does, is there any evidence that the great entrepreneurs learned to be entrepreneurial in public schools? I don't know. I mean... Thomas Edison, does he, did he learn that stuff? Like, did he get any, I mean, not, not sort of the knowledge or the, you know, the intellectual capacity to do what he did, but like just the idea that you should think outside the box, that you should be create, that it's good to think creatively, to ask what, what does not exist in society that it would be good for us to have and then go and make that thing happen. Is that value taught in schools? I don't think so. I haven't seen any evidence for that. But I mean, all you have to do is just go back and look at the, the long list of all of our great entrepreneurs and look at their histories. I'll bet you you won't find any or very few who will say it was it was uh, public schools where I got that idea to go out and create. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's sort of um, that's uh, even a mantra us homeschoolers repeat to ourselves is between Edison and Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates and uh, anyone anyone else who who actually uh, had wild success is that they all dropped out of school is one of the things they have in common. Again and again and again, it's funny, I've been listening. When you listen to interviews with sort of the great creators in society or just creative people, like even musicians and actors and actresses and um, again and again and again, you, I hear them say how much they hated school. <laughs> That's like a unifying theme among sort of our great creative people is that they hated school. Of course they did because they're trained to be quiet. They're not trained to make art. They're trained to be submissive. They're not trained to think creative, creatively. Um, just so anyway, I think, I think your Burkean friend, I mean, I think he's right that it's done a decent job of creating functionaries, people who, who fit a very specific function, you know, and I suppose you could argue, yes, 
to build the bridges and make the roads, um, we do need grunts. You know, we have someone's got to dig the ditches. You know, which requ- which requires a particular kind of discipline, which that's what they teach you in kindergarten. Kindergarten, um, and they teach it to you over and over again for the next twelve years. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's been pretty successful at that. Um, yeah, you know, it's a it's a pretty orderly citizenry. I would say the United States has had for a couple hundred years, um, but I wouldn't give it any credit for the creative entrepreneurs who have given us the good stuff. Let's. Um, I'm going to touch on. Um on some of the characters you bring up in your book who sure. who maybe who maybe aren't credited as being the um the, the biggest creators but 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 a lot of the people you you bring up are you know are the slaves the immigrants the drunkards the pirates etc and they probably they too um and and, and uh you know we, we see them as a force of positive change in a lot of ways for for what they've been able to do or at least that's that's um what we what we learn about in your book uh, these people seem to have uh, the, the correlation is that they weren't particularly well schooled in in American school systems either, <laughs> yeah, right? They were de- they were definitely unschooled. Yes, <laughs> right. That's exactly what they were. So right, I was only talking about sort of the famous uh, you know inventors and and businessmen um, who I do absolutely credit with giving us a lot of great stuff. But a lot of other great stuff was given to us, I argue in that book, by the lowest orders of society um, and people who probably never went to school at all, most of them. So um, let's do the slaves first. Okay, everyone knows the slaves were not schooled, of course, because they were slaves and, you know, they were um, <laughs> they were uh, physically, legally, violently separated from the rest of society that had the schools the masters had no incentive to put them in any particular, you know, in any school because all they wanted was again, grunt labor from them. Um, so did the slaves give us anything as a society that we find valuable now or ever? Oh, just over and over, you know, <laughs> many, many things. Uh, not mm-hmm. all Americans value this stuff, but you know, music is the most obvious thing. People are generally aware of that. Right. So, um, they think, oh, sure, I guess, let's see, there were the slave, there were the Negro spirituals and the blues, and I suppose the jazz came from that. It's true, it's all true, but so did rock and roll and rhythm and blues and hip-hop. Um, and most American popular music has some roots in slave music. Uh, so there, that's, that's pretty big. Um, and then, you know, if you look at sort of like comedy, um, a lot of what stand-up comics do now can be traced back to black stand-up, black comedians, and black uh, blackface performers who were themselves black in the early nineteenth, early twentieth century and late nineteenth century. Uh, what they did on stage is sort of they were the first to kind of brazenly violate taboos, to say what you weren't supposed to say, which is what stand-up comics do. That's their stock and trade. Um, so that's you can trace that back to the slave slave humor. Uh, much of and many um, lexicographers have done this work. I mean, much of American English comes from slang that was invented by slaves or their descendants. That was, of course, originally mocked as being, you know, primitive talk. But now we use teenly, um, and it's now a sort of standard part of American English. So. Uh, you know, many people, I'm not the only one, have argued that without the contributions of slaves to our culture, 
uh, America wouldn't be much more fun than Norway. Uh, <laughs> right? I mean, which is fine. I mean, Norway is a fine country, and it's very, you know, highly functioning, very efficient, true. Um, I don't think I'd want to live there for a few reasons, but that's certainly one of them, is that they don't have that that culture that cuts against, cuts against the puritanical work ethic, which slave culture did for obvious reasons, and cuts against the sexual repression of American culture, which slaves did, um, and gave us an alternative or a set of alternatives, different ways of thinking, different ways of living. They sort of made possible various kinds of freedom. Uh, none of that will be taught in your schools. I can guarantee that. Won't even be taught in your colleges most of the time, but certainly not in not in your um, not in your high school history classes. They'll be they'll teach you about the slaves as victims. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in, in that in that vein, we should probably qualify that you're not endorsing slavery. Uh, uh, but no, <laughs> but just talking about the 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 unusual freedoms they had, the, no, the was... their their ability to not be part of the mainstream culture, and and the fact that they weren't uh, sent to to government or you know to other other schools to control their behavior that way. Yeah, no, it was an unintended um, consequence of slavery, an, un an unintended consequence that has benefited us, but that's not an endorsement of slavery. I mean, the slave masters, no one intended that. They just wanted to get the cotton picked. That's why they had slaves. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, so, uh, right. So those great creative geniuses, I would say, renegades, the slaves, you know, they didn't come out of any schools. They were the most unschooled people in American history. Um and the prostitutes of the 19th century who were very powerful across the country, in particular in Western towns, um, but even in major cities in the East Coast and on the West Coast, um, they, they, had, they pioneered many of the freedoms that women now take for granted. So they were the first women to earn high wages. They were the first women to own property. They were the first women to have political power. Prostitutes in the West had tremendous political power. It was difficult becoming mayor of a town in the West if you didn't have, or even in San Francisco or Seattle or Los Angeles, if you didn't have the support of the madams. Uh, they were the first women to walk in the street alone without a male chaperone in an unashamed way. Uh, that was not okay for respectable women. They were the first women to wear their hair short. They were the first women to show skin at all. They pioneered most of the fashions that became totally respectable in the 20th century. They were brazen about their sexuality when, at a time when sexuality, as I said, was totally repressed in the formal culture. So they pioneered much of women's liberation before feminists even got started. And in fact, feminists were their main enemies. Um, now, because feminists were interested in becoming good citizens, they were interested in proving that women could be good um, orderly, intelligent, rational, efficient citizens. And so they hated the prostitutes because they represented just the opposite of all that stuff. But what prostitutes were doing was, was creating all sorts of freedom, not just for women, but for all of us that we all now take for granted. Um, the prostitutes, of course, in the 19th century still uh, were almost entirely from the poor and working classes. And... I would say, I mean, I don't, no one has the numbers on this, but I'm sure that a minority uh, went all the way through high school. 
Um, and I'm sure many, many of them didn't go to school at all. So, um, and certainly the main point I want to make though is that what they were doing that was so revolutionary in violating all these repressive rules uh, was not taught in any schools. And in fact, they were doing just the opposite of what the McGuffey's reader was telling girls to do. McGuffey's reader was telling girls to uh, not show anything of their body, not talk about their body, um, and to be in training to be a good mother and wife. So, yeah, that was that was pretty unschooled as well, those people. So yeah, uh, I don't yeah I don't see much of value <laughs> uh, in our current culture and our current society that I could I could I could give credit to public schools for. Yeah, so that that's um, that's sort of. Uh, a societal like us as a mass or must, uh, us as a society type of view so far do, do you have any thoughts and, and maybe this is uh, psychologizing or something but do you have any thoughts on what those effects are to an individual person yeah and in, in, in in, in you can just you know you don't have to speak from research you can just speak off the cuff yeah I've been thinking about this a lot actually because my son is 15 he's a sophomore um and we found a loophole in the public school system. I, I just haven't had, we haven't had like the time or reason. I'm sure you guys are about to yell at me when I say this, but <laughs> no, it's fine. I felt like I haven't had the time. We haven't felt like we've had the time or, or resources to, to, to unschool or homeschool him. Um, uh, maybe there are, I'd love to know if there are, but anyway, we found a, we found a weird little loophole in the Los Angeles public school system because of child actors, because of the great number of child actors and musicians there. Mm -hmm. They established in L.A., they established uh, an independent school, which basically has almost, there's no classes, and the, student, and the students meet with the teacher one hour a week. So they're basically on their own. It's to allow for child actors to be, like, on the set, on location all the time. So it's almost like homeschooling. Now, he, the curriculum is the same as the rest of the California curriculum, so that sucks. But he's much more free. Um, this year than he was last year when he was in he was in Santa Monica High School, which is a major big public high school. Uh, he was totally miserable last year, and he's much happier this year. He's still imperfect, and he's still not learning anything, and it's still the same stupid textbooks. But anyway, um, it's um, it's a factory, you know. And by the way, Horace Mann and his colleagues explicitly said that the school public schools should be designed around the model of a factory yeah and so that's why that's why they go from class to class to class like an assembly line right um uh for me and i tell this to my students all the time and they don't believe me you know i finished high school with a c average and i hated every single minute from k through 12 um <laughs> i can't tell you. I mean, I don't, and I really mean this. I cannot tell you one thing that I learned. I suppose something snuck into my mind that <laughs> they taught me that stuck. I don't. I couldn't tell you what that is. I really couldn't. Um, I do know that I was miserable. I hated it. Um, you know, and I've published two books with major publishers. I have a PhD from Columbia. I've been a college professor for twenty years. Um, you know, I think it, it's sort of a. Sh Shocking. No one ever, ever from K through 12 ever said anything to encourage me to pursue a life of the mind in any way. I, I, you know, they just ignored me or occasionally they would say, you know, 
this is no good. Try harder. <laughs> I, I mean, and so I, I came out of it um, unsure about my intelligence. I didn't think I was stupid, but I really had no idea how smart I was. I didn't. I just did not know um, for many, many years after high school. In fact, it wasn't until I defended my dissertation at Columbia that I felt confident about my intelligence, and I was thirty-five years old. Wow, that was the first. But certainly, certainly, and by the way, this was Berkeley, California, right? This was all, you know, lefties and progressives and countercultural people who were the teachers, and that was my milieu. But it's still, the school system there was terrible. Oh, and by the way, um, to this day, I have a grudge against administrators and in particular vice principals. Those are the ones who were the heavies. I spent a lot of time in vice principals' offices doing detention because I was so rebellious. I was fifth and sixth and seventh grades. I basically was staging like an open rebellion all the time. I was thrown physically into a closet by a teacher in sixth grade. And I spent a lot of time in, they would put me in the hallway sometimes, they would just throw me out of the classroom and then close the door and leave me there. And where they would send me to the assistant principal's office. And sometimes the assistant principal would try to psychologize me and sort of ask me questions about what was going on at home and make these assumptions about how maybe I was being abused at home or something. Um, yeah, so it was, yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you're talking to the right guy if you want a denunciation of public school. Funny the psychologizing point because I've talked to a number of people who have uh, dropped out of school, whether it's you know higher education uh, or K through 12, and one of the most common reactions that administrators of any kind, whether they're university bureaucrats or vice principals, have is, "Oh, I think you're depressed." Mm-hmm. As if yeah. like that's the only explanation that somebody might not <laughs> might not be flourishing in their institution, right? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so um, you know, you said, "Are we going to yell at you um, for uh, for not homeschooling?" You know, I, I sent my my kids to school for a while. I was I was schooled, um, and, and one of the biggest frustrations that we have is that there's sort of this false dichotomy where it's either 97% of the kids have this one option of 90% uh, public school, 7% uh, private school, which are, you know, a very, very similar, uh, or you can, you can homeschool, you can take them out. But unfortunately there isn't, um, what we'd really like would be like a ton of options like independent school, uh, you know, whatever they are, you know, cooperatives or, 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 you know, people who collaborate in different ways to educate or maybe there's apprenticeships, um, you know, uh, tutors, uh, mentors, uh, there, there should probably be, you know, a hundred or a thousand ways to, right. to achieve an education and to interact with other people, not just, uh, and, and the market's really starved for, uh, education alternatives because both at the public school level and the university level have such a, a monolithic, you know, hold on the market. And that's not even, it's even kind of a shame to call it a market because it's, you know, they have the, the, the laws behind them that, you know, compulsorily, uh, funded, you know, compulsory uh, attended. So right. we don't really get a chance. So uh, let's, let's, let's make a, a neat segue uh, to talk about your experience as an educator or maybe what your vision for education is. What do you, how, how do you think we could, um, we, or, you know, maybe talk, we can talk about it at a, at a country level or society level, then also at, at an individual level, you know, how can we make education better in, in your view? Well, um, so I had no idea about anything at all until I went to college, and I went to a little tiny 
lefty hippie college in Ohio, Antioch, um, which had all sorts of problems in various ways, but it was really free because it was so small and so poor and so disorganized <laughs> that um, they had no choice but to just let us let us go. Um, and then so. So I went from like classrooms in Berkeley High of 35 or 40 kids and one burned out teacher to um, sitting in a classroom with five or six other students and a professor who, you know, may not have been the greatest scholar in the world, but he had a PhD. And more importantly, he was interested in ideas mm-hmm. and he was interested in he was interested in what Plato said and he was interested in talking about ideas, big ideas. And luckily, I ran into a, call, a professor my first semester there who, for, this had never happened to me before, he actually paid attention to what my ideas were. And I would say something, and he would hear it, and then give it back to me as something else. Or he would simply present it back to me to, to show me what I was thinking. He paid attention, he tracked my mind, he tracked my intellect. He tracked the development of my ideas. He took me seriously as an intellectual, even though I didn't know shit. Um, you know, I was learning and I was developing ideas, though, because I was reading Plato with him. I was reading Aristotle with him. I was reading Aquinas with him and forming ideas. And he would pay attention to me. Um, that had never happened to me before. And it's really that simple. That's what teaching is. That's what it should be. So what I do, that's what I do with my students in college. Um, and I tell them this, I say, I'm going to treat you like intellectuals. And they actually get scared when I tell them this because, you know, they think it's just going to be, um, cause they don't feel like they're prepared for that. And well, they're not. Yeah. Well, they're, it's going to be a test, right? Maybe it's going to be like an evaluation yeah. and a grade. Well, and... And so, well, so much of school up until that point is about going through the process. It's not about actually developing any kind of substance and, they're afraid, and because I, I've, I've, I've been in these shoes. I, I've gone to seminars where it was actually about, you know, engaging in the ideas, and people at the seminar were assigned as staff members to interact with you at least twice during the entire seminar, and you can't feign substance. You can feign process. You can go through the steps. You really can't feign substance easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um... Well, I mean, there was also like a passion about ideas, right? I mean, you have to really care. It has to be a teacher who actually cares about this stuff. So, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I'm successful as a teacher is that I really care about this stuff. And that comes across. If I'm just challenging them, which I got, I spent a year abroad at the London School of Economics. <laughs> um, and I was terrified. And one of the reasons I was terrified was that it was, you know, 10 students and a big famous professor who was on the BBC the night before saying, so Thaddeus, tell me, what do you think about the argument that Smith makes on page 37? (laughs) I mean, it was that kind of really harsh Socratic questioning. Um, But it did make me uh, work hard (laughs) through fear. So it's not ideal. I think what's best is to sort of, you know, just if you're passionate about this stuff, you really care about it, it rubs off. And they start to care about it, and then they then they do the they do the reading because they're curious about what what in the world would make this guy so so fascinated. Um, yeah, and so but I but I I challenge them, but in sort of a um, kind of a tough but playful way. Mm-hmm. They say something, and I won't let them. I won't patronize. I hate patronizing. That's also very common in colleges. Um, 
especially especially um, toward the, I think students of color get patronized. Just it's hideous. It's one of the things that disgusts me most. So that it, you know people are afraid to contradict anything a black kid will say. Um, but it, sort of generally, there's patronizing going on where you know if a student says something that is that you there's there's like a fear to challenge students right um and i have no fear <laughs> to do that they appreciate it actually my students seem to appreciate it a lot actually they they like being treated like adults um and like intellectuals so i make them think through their ideas all the way all the way through um i don't want half formed ideas i understand i tell them i, I get it you haven't thought about this before this minute but now do it. Let's think through this together. Let's form that idea you just sort of blurted out. Let's make it into a coherent thing right now. Let's do this together. And I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you make it coherent. You can change your mind later or even right now, but I want you to establish a coherent, important idea right now. <laughs> um, that's all you got to do. I mean, really. And that's what they learn. It's not so much what Plato said. It's how we went about it. Yeah, how how much how much do you feel like you're um we're going back to to our deschooling theme. How much do you feel like you're reversing damage or wounds inflicted up to this point uh versus opening a new opening a new door, opening this part or or do you think it could this should be starting a lot earlier than uh college or or 35 years old? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about wounds because I don't, I don't want to speak for other people's experiences. I mean, I suppose I was wounded in a sense just by being ignored, um, which gave me the message that I wasn't smart mm -hmm. or interesting or important in any way. Um, I, guess, I suppose you could call that a wound. I mean, I, I think of it more as just a, a cage um, that we're kept in a cage for 13 years. Um, I mean, I just see I, that's what I see schools as. They're containers. You know, I don't, and my son's experience confirms that. I mean, he hasn't, he's learned almost nothing, but he's, they keep the kids off the streets for six hours mm -hmm. a day. He's good at that. Um, um, I, yeah, I want, I, I want to just break open the cage and that's what I try to do. You know, I mean, let's, let's now, it, it, but it's, it's more about, it's a, it's actually telling them that they can be thinkers. I mean, they're actually afraid of the word intellectual. They actually, they think that it, they don't want to be called that. And they, they think that is, you know, of course, elitist. I say, no, it's not. It's just a lover of ideas. That's all it means. Yeah. Um, and you haven't, you haven't been told that you can love ideas until now. That's the thing. Yeah. So that's, um, so a, a big point of this podcast is to sort of help people sort of recognize, um, that they've been in the cage or they've been on the conveyor belt. Um, or worse, the treadmill this whole time. Um, and we want to give them sort of uh, tools to recognize that and then to get out of it. So is is that it? Is to letting them, let people know that they can think or is there more to it or what, what's your feeling there? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, uh, say to them, and this is one, it's not a tool, I mean, it's just a way of looking at the world, um, which they also generally have not been taught um, that every issue is a question and every question has a debate and every debate has more than two sides 
that's the other thing they just don't know right mm -hmm. there's 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 one story of the civil rights movement or there's there's one story of thomas edison or there's one story of alexander hamilton <laughs> um no there's there's debates about all those things and it's not just like you know two two differing opinions there are 50 different points of view that have been argued by very intelligent people in writing for years and years and years about every single question so think about these things as questions and as debates as conflicts and embrace conflict embrace intellectual conflict that's what being an intellectual is um so that's also sort of opening the cage for them because they, they just didn't know they didn't know that there were all these different ways of thinking about the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. They thought, hmm, bad or good, right? But there's all, there's a massive historiographical debate about just that question, about every question that have, there's all sorts of points of view on every question. And it just becomes, if you're interested in all in the world or in ideas, it becomes like this wonderland. I hated history classes in high school, hated them. I thought it was a total waste of time. Then when I was in college and I found out that there were four and five and seven and ten points of view on every single historical question, it became like an amusement park for me. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to play and explore all day long. And that's the way I, I still am. From 19 to now, I'm 51. I mean, it's just that's all I've been doing. I've just been exploring the world of ideas and history and, you know, and just because I suddenly saw that it was it was open. It was open and you didn't have to just take one or two points of view. There were infinite points of view on every question. So that's all. Just unlock the cage. You know that I've had uh, difficulty <laughs> in academia for various reasons. Um, but um, I am, have been continually enraged by the lack of, as I was just talking about, diversity of ideas, actually. Even though in academia, in colleges, it's better than in public high school, there is still a fairly uniform culture and a fairly uniform set of interpretations um, and a fairly uniform politics. I mean, it is no uh, secret that, you know, the vast majority of professors in social sciences and humanities are liberal or left-wing. I mean, there's no, I mean, there's just no denying that. Um, and, you know, a lot of those people over the last 50 or so years since the left has dominated academia have done fantastic things, fantastic mm -hmm. work that has completely changed my views on things, and informed my work in all sorts of ways, and I'm tremendously grateful for the work. Um, but you won't find much debate actually inside classrooms and you, what you won't find, and this is what was most depressing to me, even when I was in college, um, you won't find them debating each other really, um, not in public. And you won't find them most importantly debating fundamental principles or fundamental ideas, right? So academics debate each other all the time, but it's kind of just around the edges. You know, they have a fundamental agreement about uh, let's say the welfare state, you know, uh, you will have a really hard time finding a social scientist or a history professor or an anthropologist or a sociologist who doesn't basically think we should have the new deal, you know, who's mm -hmm. not basically just for instance. Right. Um, I mean, seriously, like I, I have not known one in my 
30 years in and around colleges and universities. I have not known a single one, an, an actual professor who was opposed to the welfare state in itself, right? So, my God, I mean, that's like a major question, right? You know, and you don't even see debates about that. That's a real problem. It's made them lazy, by the way. I think it's made their work bad. I think academic work actually has declined in quality in the last 10 to 20 years, and I think that's largely why. You see this, it's almost, it's embarrassing to watch. Um, you guys may have seen examples of this when college professors and like major college professors and university professors are brought on to cable news um, shows, <laughs> they get squashed by their intellectual inferiors because they're not used to debating about fundamental principles. They've just simply never heard of an argument against the welfare state as a whole, not like this little piece of the welfare state or that little piece or this implementation of it, but the whole idea of a welfare state. They've never been, they've never had to make that argument before, that the whole thing is good, right? Um, and I've seen this again and again and again, and it's amazing to me. It's like, wow, you've never, it's obvious to me, you've never thought through your own, your own core ideas, because <laughs> mm -hmm. you never had to. Um, and People are, of course, there's still people doing good work, but my God, I see again and again and again the same stuff repeated over and over again. People just take these things for granted. They just don't think through things. So um, one of the things I will be doing in Renegade University, which will be, I haven't said this, um, a series of several series of online lectures, which will be organized as courses, which you can download and either watch as video or you can listen to as audio. Um, and in-person seminars. I'm going to be giving actual sort of classes in various cities around the country, starting on the West Coast in Los Angeles and Portland. But then there's, a, there's enough interest that I will have them probably in San Francisco and Seattle and New York City and Washington and Chicago and other cities as well. Um, and then also online interactive seminars using the sort of new education um, software that's out there. Mm -hmm actually see me and I can see you and we're all talking in sort of a, a virtual seminar um, and it'll be we'll have courses on American history and political philosophy which I've taught for many years I'm not just a historian I've also taught philosophy in particular political philosophy uh, there will be there's been a lot of interest in me teaching uh, just about current events and so we're probably gonna have current event current events courses as well um, but one of the things we're gonna do is have real conflicts of ideas in these courses. So either I will be presenting all of these questions as questions, as debates, I present the whole panoply of, of arguments around every issue, or we will actually have different people from different schools of thought debating each other head on. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> something that I wanted to see. I assumed I would see, I actually assumed I would see that in college. It never happens. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to actually say, we're going to show people that they're, we're going to celebrate, we're going to celebrate conflicts of ideas. Where can people find you? So people should go to my website, ThaddeusRussell.com, and they can click, click on the link on the first page, and they'll take you to the Renegade University page. And from there, you can and you should sign up for my email list which is free, it'll take you just 30 seconds, and you'll get all the information about Renegade University, which we will be rolling out in the coming months. 
and uh, they can buy your book, uh, A Renegade History of the United States, on Amazon. And I believe you have a new one that's in the works. Yeah, I'm finishing a book now uh, with Grove Atlantic Publisher, um, which is A Renegade History of America Abroad. The working title, though, is Blood and Freedom. It's it's a similar argument to Renegade History of the United States, but it's applied to America's influence in the world. So I look at lowbrow, so-called lowbrow popular culture, American popular culture, and its subversive anti-authoritarian influences across the world over the last century and a half. So from jazz players in the Philippines to blue jeans in the Soviet Union and satellite dishes streaming in Fox uh, streaming in the the Simpsons in Tehran now, uh, we see that renegade lowbrow American culture has been terribly threatening to the most uh, repressive regimes in world history. But Amer the American government has refused to acknowledge that for various reasons. Thank you for joining us. You can share this podcast and learn more by going to www.deschoolyourself.com. You may promote this series by rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Host Zachary Slayback is the author of the book, The End of School. Jeffrey Till is the author of the book, Rise Above School. Both are available in hard copy and Kindle at Amazon.com.